I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk a little bit about Mental Health Awareness Month as lots going on in our country right now, and we all need to be taking care of our mental health. And then later on the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Corey Nathan, who is the host of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. It's a wonderful interview that you're not going to want to miss, so stay tuned. Arms folded, feet pacing the floor. It's written all over your face. The body doesn't hide our true feelings. It disregards promises made to keep the peace or just keep it to ourselves. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. We're giving our listeners a hand when discerning body language. That's our focus in season three. The church is called the body of Christ. So what does our body language say about perennial and pressing hot button issues? What's costing us an arm and a leg? Who do we give the cold shoulder and keep at arm's length? When have we put our foot in our mouth or turned a blind eye? Why are we still sitting on our hands? Where do we toe the line? And why is the kingdom that is coming not on the tip of our tongues? In season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll address these questions in eight episodes, and I hope you'll be all ears. The Raceless Gospel Podcast is looking at body language. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Episode one drops on May 5th. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, it's good to see your shiny face again. How are things in your neck of the woods? Well, things are going well. We are winding down the school year. Um, our weather has settled out a little bit. And it's hot, Autumn. I mean, hot. It's, but I love the hot. I'm a Central Texas girl. This is I. I think I like used to be a sunflower. Like I just love the sun. <laughs> I love the heat. I'm here for it. Okay, but it was 100 and what 12 degrees in Altus, Oklahoma, the other day. Uh, mm-hmm. The state of Oklahoma set a record for that early uh, having that kind of temperature. That's crazy. Yeah, it is excessive. I spent all of Mother's Day on the soccer pitch and have like a little bit of a, a pink tint to my skin to show for it. Wow. Um, well, I didn't know you were playing soccer. Did you score any goals? <laughs> no, but Hugo <laughs> scored two goals for me, one in the first game and one in the second game, and they won their tournament undefeated two weekends in a row. That's so. awesome. Well, yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm glad things are going well, and uh, you know, it's been fun just seeing people outside and enjoying the, the sunshine again, so it's been, been a long winter for me for many, many reasons, but it's good to see people out and about. You know, I think we talked about this a little bit, maybe a few episodes ago, but I really, during the pandemic, during COVID, when we were just home and every day felt the same, it was like Groundhog Day, but no one was funny like Bill Murray. Like it was just no <laughs> fun and the same thing right. and repeat. I really found an appreciation for the seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never really realized how much we as humans need that change. And I find myself as each season starts to change, getting excited. Like 
I was so excited when it was fall. I was so excited when it was winter. And now summer is coming. And in our neighborhood, they pulled the tarp off the pool. And the kids and I were just like <laughs> cheering as we drove by. And what what is it? People just need change like that. It's beautiful. Yeah. And spring is such a good time to be able to, to, to see things after the long, dreary winter, see things come back to life. And uh, yeah. you, know, you see that literally outside and, and hopefully internally as well. Uh, and maybe that is why, Autumn, that they set May as Mental Aware or Mental Health Awareness Month. That's been going on uh, the entire month, and uh, such an important, important topic because we have been through it, Autumn. I mean, not only with the global pandemic, with a contentious political um, environment, with uh, the insurrection of January sixth, uh, with the presidential election, with just, I mean, with war now breaking out in Eastern... Uh, and the hits just keep coming. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just no wonder that we're all kind of walking around in this funk and all of us are looking forward to spring uh, and some blossoming and color and warmth in the world because it seems like it's been a long, long winter that crossed over the last two springs and falls uh, summers. And so, you know, I don't, you have been a strong advocate for mental health. And so just, you know, briefly, why do you think it's so important for people to take care of their mental health? So I think it's important to take care of your mental health because so it's, it always sort of reminds me of when you were a little kid and you thought if you closed your eyes, no one else could see you. Um, and, and that's not how it works, right? People can still see you even if you close your eyes. No one else knows what's going on inside of your mind. You may present the most sunny disposition. You may be put together. It may look like your whole family is put together. You drive a nice car. Um, you, you're doing all the right things, but only you truly know what's pinging around between your ears. And when you learn to check in with yourself and truly admit, I'm not okay. I'm something feels off. No one can advocate for your mental health like you can. And I think it's just a powerful tool that a lot of people overlook. Yeah. You know, and I think you said a wonderful little phrase. And I was reading an article not too long ago, and I cannot remember where I read it. Could have been a goodfaithmedia.org. Uh, <laughs> but it was a phrase that said, you know, we've got to come to the realization that not being okay is okay. Mm-hmm. And as long as you recognize that and you're working on whatever issues that you're, you're dealing with, uh, that's important. Um, but it's okay to be, it's also to, to recognize that, you know, you know, I'm not okay, and right. things aren't things aren't in a good place right now, and I'm struggling right. mentally and emotionally, and recognizing that is is a huge win for many people because some people just continue down this road until it gets so dark that it is almost impossible to get out of that darkness, and so hopefully everybody gets to that point where they can recognize that you know. It's okay not to be okay. And and then And so. honestly, right now, mm-hmm. if you think you're okay, after everything that we have been through, after everything that's on our horizon, let me just tell you, you're probably not. Yeah. No one should be okay right now. No one. There are varying degrees of okayness 
And you have different tools in your tool belt that you can do to, to, you know, to try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But I would say people being okay right now is probably in the minority. And even the phrase itself, being okay, um, is a little bit dismissive because it's kind mm-hmm. of saying, eh, I'm not good, I'm not bad, I'm just, I'm, I'm okay. It's it's almost as though we need to kind of, Meh. yeah, kind of, we need to kind of come up with a, a different phrase or just a different, maybe even acknowledgement or recognition that we all have our mental health issues to yeah. some degree. And we all have these bits of trauma, certainly there are individuals in the world that have immense trauma that I just can't even imagine. Um, but all of us are dealing with our own stuff somehow, some way. And hopefully, though, we're working on it and we're trying to acknowledge it and, 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 and work through that and, and try to, to, to find a a healthier existence. And I don't know necessarily what that means, healthier existence, mm-hmm. but trying to work towards some progress in our mental health and making strides towards uh, a better mental health. And, and again, I don't know how to define that. I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a counselor. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, it, I just think, I think that we need to take this seriously because I just talk to more and more people in my personal life and my professional life who are struggling with mental health right now. Yeah. And, and it's like you said, it's okay. It is okay. Yeah. It's, it's expected right now. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to cut our opening short a little bit uh, this week because, Autumn, you and I got to sit down with Corey Nathan, and he was an absolute delight. Corey is the host of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, and the conversation was so robust that we almost went a complete hour. Uh, And so it it was really worth it. Uh, It's it's a great interview, and I just can't wait to share it with you. So stay tuned for Corey Nathan, the host of Talking Politics. Now, I'm not going to say it right, so Autumn, you say it. Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. <laughs> That's it. That's the perfect way to say it. you got to so. get a little shoulder action. That's shoulder shoulder and it. twang. I don't have the shoulder <laughs> and twang. So, uh, so stay tuned. It's a great interview. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique an immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from the West Coast in California. Corey Nathan was raised as an Orthodox Jew in an Orthodox Jewish household. His family is mostly from Brooklyn, New York, but Corey grew up on the Jersey side. That's right, brothers and sisters, Bruce Springsteen country. In his late 20s, much of the family's chagrin, Corey became a born-again Christian. Not long after his epiphany, however, a new believer began to find many of the prevailing socio-political positions of contemporary American evangelists 
evangelicalism to be at odds with the very scriptures that are supposed to guide and be the authority for Christians. He started out as a stockbroker, though, during that day and was studying theater conservatory at night. Since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in business and one foot in creative pursuits. Corey continues to be a student of theology, politics, and culture and enjoys sharing invigorating conversations with world-renowned experts on these subjects on the podcast he produced and host, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Love the name. He can also be caught having these same kind of discussions with friends and family over a good whiskey, or oh, you're my kind of guy, and a glass of wine with music of Monk, Coltrane, and Louis Armstrong setting the mood. Corey has been married to Lisa for almost 25 years, and they have three kids, Savannah, Jackie Boy, and Emerson, along with the family pooches, Bailey and Charles Mingus Third. So so, Corey, with all of that, my dear friend, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Well, thanks so much, Mitch. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, Autumn. How y'all doing? We are doing well. And I'm going to really quickly correct Mitch. Um, he definitely put the G on talking and killing. I, you know? <laughs> and as a Texan, I just really felt offense to that. There's no G on the end of that Jaren phrase, my dear. You know what's no. so funny about that? I typed this intro out and I put talking. And I went back and said, that doesn't sound right. And so I actually put the apostrophe there, got rid of the G, and I still could not say talking. So talking I should have had you do politics and religion without killing each other. That's there right. There you go. You can have that. Thank you, Autumn. Thank you for that correction. Yes. Corey, let's first talk about your faith journey. Um, I feel like it's a roller coaster a little bit, and I'm sure you do too. And, and I sort of want to buy your mom and dad a beer. Um, <laughs> growing up as an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn, New York, had to be fast. Fascinating, and then just last just last week, actually, we had Rabbi Rachel Lane from Brooklyn on the pod talking about women's reproductive health. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey from Christianity uh, to Christianity from Orthodox Judaism. Yeah, no, you're right. I, and to, to be clear, I did grow up more on the Jersey side. So we started out in New York. Uh, I grew up in Jersey, but regularly we go back to Brooklyn uh, to my grandfather's synagogue and observe the holiday because we observed all the holidays. And there's nothing, I can smell it now. There's nothing quite like <laughs> being around a bunch of old Jews, you know, when, especially on Yom Kippur, when they've been starving all day and they had, <laughs> you know, the guys who were really zealous about it, they wouldn't even brush their teeth. I could still smell it now. It's, it was uh, just wonderful. the righteousness. It's in the air. <laughs> literally it's in the air you know i don't know if they're one of the mitzvahs is like not to even use deodorant today but um yeah no but it it was uh it was great you know it it, it's it was a way to plug me in to a bigger story Mm. to help me understand personally my own family's story who i was within the larger context of who we are as a family and as a people. So it's something that that is definitely in my bones. But, you know, I, I remember a time, it might've been right before my bar mitzvah. So at that age, when you're starting to ask more bigger questions, you're starting to think independently, you know, but I, I really had a lot of questions even before that age, the, the, the age of adolescence. But I, I remember sitting next to my father in synagogue and it, another Yom Kippur, it, um, it, it was uh, when we got to the part in the service when we were, part of the prayer is from Ecclesiastes. Man comes from dust and ends in dust. He wins his bread at the risk of his life. Um, turn, 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 <laughs> for those who don't know. Um, but uh, I, I just, there was something about that 
prayer that really raised a bunch of questions in me. And I, I can remember just continuing to ask these bigger questions. Like, um, f- first of all, the nature of God. Is God always present? Uh, I even wrote this poem that became a song called The Fly on the Wall. What if God was like a fly on the wall that knows and sees all? Mm. It was my little high school you know, attempt at yeah. uh, theological, I don't know, poetry and stuff. <laughs> but I continued to ask these questions through my teenage years, my into my 20s. And some of the answers, some of the ways, uh, Jews are funny. I don't know if you know this, but Jews are funny, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, they, and oftentimes, unless you're like in a yeshiva and you're really studying this stuff out over the course of years, a rabbi will come up with an answer that to, to me, after a while, it just wasn't sufficient. Like I, I looked at the um, Abraham story and there were some problems for me. Uh, and or, or Noah's story. There were some problems for me. I thought these guys were like, uh, if, if you will, the saints of our religion. Right. And yet they had these massive failures. Like they, they had these these things that they did that would never be acceptable if it was my father, right. if it was me, if it was, you know. You know, so you know what's, fa- what's fascinating about that, Corey, is that your story could really mimic my story. And I grew up in American evangelicalism mm. uh, because we read these stories and it's like nobody's talking about the rest of the story. <laughs> or nobody's talking about these problems that we just kind of gloss over and read yeah. over because they're, they're so rich and, and complicated and complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some nuances, especially with the failures of our faith tradition, that we just don't, we kind of ignore. So I'm sitting here listening to you to tell the story. It's like, man, you're telling my story. You're telling it from, you know, growing up in a Jewish home, an Orthodox Jewish home. I could tell the same story in American evangelicalism. So keep going. That's, I mean, I'm just, I'm resonating with this. Oh, good, good. I, I appreciate that. And I apologize because I'm doing exactly what you said. I, <laughs> I, I was hoping to avoid to tell the story a little bit more concise. It doesn't need to be like the 12 chapters of, you know, the, the longest movie, the, the greatest story ever told. Uh, but um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just, when I would ask a question, I would get an answer oftentimes that just d- didn't feel sufficient. You know, so if Abraham w- was such a great patriarch, why did he do this? And he, he really mistreated, he was married to these two people and, you know, he mistreated and, and the, the rabbi's answer was something along the lines of, well, he was so holy. He had enough holiness to spare. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that just doesn't. Res- the tevia res- of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I began to ask bigger questions, deeper questions. And then later into my twenties, I, I didn't even, I couldn't even formulate and articulate what those central questions were. And without going into a longer story about how this all came about, I was at a point in my life where I was looking for different kind of mentorship. I was in my late twenties and I was just coming into my own in business. Uh, I, Lisa and I had gotten married and uh, we were talking about having a family. So I was looking for mentorship about how to be, you know, a better husband, eventually be a good dad and uh, how to be, how to do all this in the community, like be a good member of my community and be successful in business. And one guy in particular who was mentoring me, I would always go to him for advice and he would always answer me with books. Here, read this book. Mm -hmm. And 
every stinking book he gave me was a Jesus book. (laughs) (laughs) That guy. That guy. guy. He always gets in the way. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like Augmentito on sales or, you know, just all these different. When I say Jesus book, they were always books that um, New Testament wisdom was woven into whatever it might have been on being a better dad or being a better husband or being a better whatever. And um, but this guy, Hal was his name, Hal Rosen was uh like me he grew up jewish but he became a christian at a certain point so i'm like ah that's all well and good for you hal but like don't give me your stinking jesus books like find something else like you know i'm jewish right yeah but it led to a bigger conversation and in the midst of me asking these bigger questions about philosophical theological stuff it led to this really in-depth inquiry over the spring and summer of 2000 and hal gave me i i finally took him to task over it and hal gave me another book and it was (laughs) Uh, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. And just by the title of it, I knew it was another Jesus book. <laughs> right. And But Hal really challenged me. He right. said, listen, man, you don't know the first thing about being a Christian, what it means, this whole Jesus thing. Like, just read the book. At least we'll have something to talk about. And frankly, I found the book to be completely insufficient. I, I didn't find it persuasive. Right. But what I did find interesting was that somebody was at least trying to make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I never heard one of those cases made. And, and it, like I said, to that book itself wasn't terribly compelling, except to the extent that I said, okay, I got more questions now. <laughs> and for the next, I don't know, six months, I was reading voraciously. I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias debates uh, or John Lennox with uh, who's Lennox um, debating. I think he was debating with Christopher Hitchens back then. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, so I, I just dove in and it was this obsession. I was ensconced in a 10 hour a day reading habit. I think it was. And by October of that year, I was compelled. I was at least persuaded to say, I need to know more. Because at that point, I still hadn't read the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So I, because to me, cracking open the New Testament, I did believe in a creator God who was active in his creation. And as a Jew, I thought if I walked into a Christian church, if I cracked open the New Testament, this creator God would strike me down right then and there. (laughs) Um, So that didn't happen. <laughs> right. uh, but I started with James. Uh, Hal knew enough to know kind of my sense of humor and, yeah. you know, uh, some of the questions I was grappling with. So James starts with it to the 12 tribes. I'm like, oh, that's me. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Um, and uh, but it was also dealing with faith versus works, which was a theological problem that I was trying to work out. And that brought me into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So I started in Matthew and about five chapters in, I get to what's known as a Devar Torah. The, the Jesus, you know, this, this uh, main character, if you will, right, right, right. was giving what I recognized as a Devar Torah, which in Judaism, you, you read from the Torah three days a week, and then the rabbi typically gives a Devar Torah, an explanation of what you're reading. Uh, he expounds on it or explains it based on uh, his, his knowledge of Talmud and other things. Well, Jesus was giving this Devar Torah that was the most brilliant that I'd ever heard or read. What I didn't put two and two together was I was reading the Sermon on the Bounce. <laughs> right. So, yeah. uh, so that that just pulled me in. I, I read. It took me about a day or two to read through uh, Revelation twenty-two. And so, did this bring it, you to the conclusion that okay, uh, I think I want to follow this guy Jesus? 
that's exactly it, it might not have been exactly those words but that was exactly the sent sentiment yeah it was i think i believe this thing i think that there's something about this that makes sense to me that there's a continue in some ways a discontinuation of the story but in many ways a continuation of the story of what god was doing in his creation yeah. that i i definitely believed in an open universe and an active creator personal god if you will right. um, and that god was acting within his creation i also realized that there's something wrong with creation not that god made it wrong but that we made it wrong that yeah. uh, human beings with our agency uh which god kind of gave us um in order to love more perfectly mm -hmm. that, that I'm, I'm kind of getting into a little bit of philosophy or, or theology yeah here, no, no, no this, and this is what i love about having these kind of conversations because just in your narrative uh corey is that uh one of my favorite things to do is to actually talk about jesus which i know you know sounds crazy but it's one of the favorite <laughs> things to do is to talk jesus jesus with my rabbi friends and with my imam friends uh with people who have that uh that, that tradition in their backgrounds because a lot of times and we're going to talk about this here in a moment when we switch to the conversations in the pod uh that, that you produce that you know, a lot of times American evangelicalism has baptized Jesus in whiteness, in colonialism, in capitalism, in every fabric of our society, making him look more like us than us look like him. And at the end of the day, we forget that Jesus was a Jew and, you know, was a practicing Jew. Um, you know, I always startle people when I begin a, a conversation or a lecture that I do uh, on a certain topic when I mention to them, you know, hey, you do know Jesus was not a Christian, right? And it's like, what? You know, <laughs> no, he wasn't, and, and neither was Paul. I mean, they they started following Jesus, and then later on, people started calling them uh, as a slur Christian. But uh, you know, they they had their traditions and they had their faith. They were just on this journey trying to figure out uh, what. Uh, what the will of God was in their lives and in the world and how all that played out. So your story is just fascinating and, and I love it. So you, 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 you make a profession of faith and you decide to follow Jesus. Now, this is going to lead into the conversation about your podcast, talking politics and, and religion without killing each other. Um, you had to have a very serious conversation with your family, I'm assuming. Uh, you said it was to their chagrin, but I would imagine there's a lot more to that story. Uh, but that, I think, it may be an important story for, for you and for the audience to understand there's these personal experiences in our life that prepare us to have more difficult conversations about critical issues uh, later on in life. So how did that conversation go? Imagine an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. And I'm there for it. I am so there yeah. for it. <laughs> And whether it's Ray or the, I forgot his brother's, the, the character's name, but, uh, you know, mom, I am a Christian now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then, but my mother, like, I'm convinced that Ray Romano and what's it, the, the guy um, who has that food show now, the, the producer of the show, I'm convinced that oh, they followed my mother. Yeah. That Phil, Phil something, Phil, right? Phil, yes. Um, that they followed my mother around for years in order to write the character of Ray's mother on that show. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, it was Thanksgiving morning, Lisa and I took a red eye, it was 2000. So I started with my dad, and we just sat out on a porch, I still lived in the house in Jersey, where I grew up. And uh, 
it was like a two or three hour talk because my dad my dad was a guidance counselor his whole career well he was a mediation specialist in new york city school inner city schools uh but he his vocationally he knew how to do conflict resolution and he knew he was very analytical and uh in his way of dealing with conflicts so that's how he approached me at first a month later i got this 10-page single-spaced letter laying out all of the reasons why i can't become a christian and it attacked me from every emotional filial obligation historical political just every every tactic that you could imagine uh and that letter i started responding to paragraph by paragraph well i'm not exaggerating 10 pages single space i probably have it somewhere still Uh, but i responded uh in emails and then we started trading emails and my response to paragraph one my dad would respond to so then i'd have to respond to that and it would get all these other offshoots but i worked my way through that letter and it took the better part of three three and a half years and the conversations were fraught i would tell you though that after i told him and we went home before i got that letter my dad's first response and i don't think he would admit to this now but i do know from talking to my my uh, my mother actually that he considered what um that how the story played out in filler on the roof where he was basically going to sit shiver for me that's mm-hmm. as an orth you know a, mm-hmm. uh, an observant family that's what you do when your child marries a non-jewish girl or uh in our case he wasn't going to take the stand on on marrying a, a shiksa but he was going to take a stand on me saying i am a christian now right but he decided even in his pain even in his mourning that his relationship with his son was even more important than carrying out this ritual and and it was i think it was a profound decision that he made now my mother's reaction was definitely along the lines of what you'd expect from everybody's love frame. And she was like, <laughs> I don't understand. I just, what, my son is walking with Jesus? I, <laughs> you know, she was just, so she she goes, Ronnie, did you hear, did do hash? She was speaking a little bit in, you know, do hash? Our son is a born again Republican. Like, what? <laughs> How did that come in? Like, so, yeah. Oh, they're was, very intermingled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I understand. I understood what the perception was. Uh, well, that, so, that's a go. great story. So, yeah. let's talk about the podcast talking politics sure. and religion without killing each other. You mentioned earlier that there was a disconnect uh, when you, uh, when you, uh, at first became a, a follower of Jesus between the socio-political positions of contemporary American evangelicalism and very scriptures that are supposed to be Christian's authority. So was that somewhat, and, and obviously your conversion experience as well, but were those catalysts in making you want to start a podcast like this? Eventually, when I, when I heard my first podcast, I thought, wow, this is the medium for these conversations. And because I had been having conversations like these for 15, 20 years, you know, because I I was very much uh, my businesses, um, I had business interests in the entertainment industry, still, you know, had businesses in the arts. So a lot of my friends from entertainment and the arts were definitely non-religious leaning, a a vast majority, non-religious and oftentimes progressive and liberal. And I would have to have difficult conversations with them when they made assumptions about, you know, if, if I was at a poker game or something like that on a Saturday night and I had to take off 
you know, early enough so that we could get up for church the next morning. Mm-hmm. You mentioned church to somebody in the entertainment industry. Oftentimes they're going to be like, what? You know, it, <laughs> just w- what are you doing? And then make a whole other set of assumptions based just based right. on the fact that you're going to church. Sure. Uh, similarly, if I'm hanging out with my um, brothers and sisters uh, in a Bible study and, you know, we're talking about the arts, they're going to make a bunch of assumptions about where my politics are. Mm-hmm. And well, I know we're not supposed to talk about this, but blah, blah, blah. Um, And off, off we go. If we even get into the conversation, but um, so I'd be having conversations in two very different worlds that were a lot alike each other in some of the mistakes that they were making, some of the assumptions that they were making. And I'll say it, some of the prejudices that they held without even recognizing them as prejudices. So you know, if I were, for example, there was a poker game when I mentioned I'm going to church and this, um, this lady next to me, she just, it, this was, um, 2016. It must've been 2016 because she started grilling me about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hold, just slow to, you know, hold down, so slow down, hold, right. hold up. Like I, I just for the record, I don't know how you got from me going to church to me supporting Donald Trump and grilling me about Donald Trump as if I would want to defend him in the first place. But like, let's just kind of unwind that for a second. But she just, she wouldn't have any of it. She, she was very passionate, hated Donald Trump, hated how all those Christians are, you know, supporting Donald Trump. And frankly, like, I, again, I could see how she would make that connection, but the fact that she would automatically assume that I was one of them and then start grilling me and, and frankly, kind of abusively attacking me, um, be getting all of her frustrations about Donald Trump and all those Christians out on me. Like it wasn't a very productive conversation. So that that's that's just one illustration of like, we, there's got to be a better way to do this. Or So, Cordy, the- I'm sorry, let me interject real quick. So it sounds like what you're describing is, and I got so many other questions that follow up on this, but it sounds like what you were experiencing in both communities was they were talking about the same issues, but they were talking about and at one another and never talked with one another. Exactly. About this. Exactly. So, so it was happening in the church too. And my kids were going to a Christian school. So I, I realized that there were some things that just, it was like a flashing red light to me. Um, we had a, a guest speaker at, at our school uh, Chris, classical Christian education, and the lady's from Eastern Europe, and I thought she was going to talk about her experiences growing up in Eastern Europe and how it was to be a Christian in in a you know an atheist uh, kind of a default atheist society. That's not what she came to talk about. She came to talk about Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> she oh, spent an hour, goodness. and every time she mentioned a name, she mentioned a middle name, oh, sure. and that he was really a Marxist, and that he was probably a terrorist, and. I just, oh, at the end, I got up and, and I wasn't going to try to debate with her. Right. I, I, I just got up and I asked the school, I asked us as a community, what, who are we? Like, what, what does this have to do with classical Christian education? And boy, it, it was as if I had just said, you know, I just picked up a baby and chopped it in two and like, I, I couldn't have done anything worse because I was screamed at from the back of the room. We eventually, when, when uh, my dad was with me that night, bad choice, by the way, but you know, we were, we were threatened out in the parking lot. And and what I realized was I I didn't even say, I didn't even try to defend Barack Obama. Um, 
what it was, was I didn't express sufficient hatred for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And it also occurred to me that there are primary characteristics that define us as a community. And it's not necessarily the fruit of the spirit, for example. What, what primarily defines us is these socio-political positions. Mm -hmm. and, and some a lot of those socio-political positions, it's not as if they're informed by, by Burke or even William F. Buckley or Thomas Sowell. They're informed by, we know we hate those guys. Yep. I don't know, but I'm against it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like great yeah. uniting cry, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So how much, Corey, how much, I mean, because uh, we've always been divided. I mean, we can't say that this is something new. Um, you know, I mean, the church has been dividing itself since it began. I mean, it, for example, you can't read the book of Acts uh, and, yeah. and and not understand that the church split immediately after Jesus yeah, sins yeah. into glory. Uh, and so there's always been these divisions. There's always been these moments in time. Uh, Phyllis Tickle called them these rummage cells that the church has every 500 years. Um, the last I think one, we've accelerated it. Honestly. Well, the last one was, was was truly the Reformation, and I truly believe, and, I, and I'm a disciple of, of Tickle, that she, I think, is right that this moment in history is a hinge moment, uh, not only for the church but for the larger community of faith, because we we're, we are always talking at each other. We're talking about each other. We're never talking with one another anymore. We're never having these productive conversations. Um, it's it's a, a character assassination of the other, depending on who the other is in your life. And that it, it's, it, it, this could be the, the end all for, for you know, people of faith, unless we can figure out another way. And so we're trying to figure this out. This has been going on now for about 100 years, uh, and it's continuing, and it's ramped up recently, and not just within the last six years. A lot of people want to point to the election of Trump, and yes, that accelerated it immensely. But uh, these conversations have been smoldering for a long time, and these divisions yeah. have been smoldering for a long time. What what is because your pod is is a wonderful example of bringing people together to talk about critical issues who may not necessarily agree but are able to articulate their points of view in a constructive healthy and productive way and you still may in the pod maybe disagreeing yeah, on sure. an issue yeah. but at least people have been heard people understand other points of view and it's a, it's a healthier dynamic so talk a little bit about that I really appreciate that, Mitch. And yeah, it's not to say that I got it all figured out. I mean, listen, I I got all kinds of messed up and twisted just over this last weekend. You know, I saw somebody who has a political position that I don't fully agree with, and I certainly don't agree with the way that he was expressing himself on that position. Um, so I, but... I saw how viciously he was attacked in this uh, industry association that we're a part of. Mm. And I said, listen, whether you agree or disagree with this fellow, Daniel, can we just not hate each other so much? Can mm -hmm. we just not be so vicious? Can, can we be, I think I used the word civil and I used the word grace. And again, it was one of those moments. I felt like I was back in that auditorium <sighs> at, uh, but, but it, it was, 
it was a group of people that were acting exactly the same, but they think they're enemies. You know, the, the, the story I described before about the Barack Hussein Obama thing and the saying, glint who are of we? pitchforks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The whole pitch. Yeah, exactly. The whole pitchforks thing. I'm like, man, you guys look a lot alike with pitchforks yeah. in your hands. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so here's the thing. David French and Curtis Chang uh, on last week's Good Faith Pod, which I, I recommend to everybody. It's great. They have great conversations every week. They, I think it was Curtis who made a really profound point. He said, if we can simply grant the possibility that those who disagree with could have some intellectual integrity and moral integrity behind their position, that that would be a good start. Mm -hmm. But I think what we do immediately is if we hear something that's even, you know, five degrees off of, of what we're saying, or if we're seeing, in my case last weekend, someone who is sympathizing for someone that they disagree with. Oh, well, then you're one of them. Yeah. Now I don't have to. I Now, uh, the, the next thing that we almost mechanically do automatically is, is kind of dehumanize them in order to vilify everything about them. Mm -hmm. You know, we take whatever data points we need in order to um, make our vilification that much more robust of that person. I saw some folks doing that with me, frankly, uh, it, and it was jarring. It's it, it's hard for me, you know, we're, we're I think we're still in mental health awareness month. It's hard mm -hmm. for me um, to think clearly in those moments, e even clearly enough to say, I got to back away. I just yeah. need to back away. I need to breathe. Uh, but have um, you watched this show? What we do in the shadows? No, such a non sequitur. So, <laughs> wow, where are you going to go with this one? This is a vampire show. <laughs> it's a vampire show, right? It's, okay. it's hysterical. It's the guys from Flight of the Concord. Mm. Um. Anyway, it's fantastic. But when the vampires get mad at each other, they just like <laughs> and they like rise into the air and they're like you know chest bumping one another, and that's what happens because you just get all riled up. And yeah. we talked about it on this podcast that you know in 2016, um. I was a liquid hot magma volcano. I was mad. I was working in higher ed and I had students who were DACA recipients. I had students who were black. I had students who were Muslim, who were terrified, who were LGBTQI. And they were coming into my office and just sobbing. And the mama bear in me was so mad. Like I just had a fire in my belly and I couldn't talk to anyone that didn't agree with me because I just was white hot mad. Thankfully, I've cooled. And, you know, when lava travels out of a volcano, sometimes where that heat went is some of the, the richest soil, you know, because it comes from a good place. It really does. And and I'm I'm happy to report that I'm better able to discuss these things. And one place that I find a lot of hope um, that was actually exemplified in your podcast, uh, Talk and Politics and Religion, <laughs> was when you and Savannah interviewed Rick Hansen. Oh, Yeah. And now knowing that Savannah grew up, you know, pretty Christian in a Christian classical school, but here she is, they, here, she, she's Savannah, they. yes, yeah. it, it, but here they are talking with Rick Hansen about Buddhism and about mindfulness, and, and I was like, this generation is just more malleable than we are. They just yeah. are. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's, a, that's a great example where I, I have to find a way to learn from my eldest uh, from Savannah and or, or, or just anyone around us. I, I think, Mitch, what I was alluding to before was that instead of instead of 
falling back on these reflexive reactions. There, there are ways to go about this that are healthier for us personally, healthier mm-hmm. for our immediate relationships around us and healthier for our culture. Yeah. So if one, we can allow for the possibility that someone who disagrees with, it, well, look, if, if, if it was 15 or 20 years ago when I first become a Christian and I was reading this Rick Hansen book, I'd be reading it through sort of a John MacArthurian lens <laughs> of like, well, here's where he's wrong. Bazinga, because, bazinga. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but it was a sort of a, a territorialist approach to theology. And, you know, last time I checked, John MacArthur himself is not God himself, you know? So have you so, asked him that yet? <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, that's, well, you, you all want to go there? We can go there. I mean, um, but so here's the thing. Let, let me just, th- this is what I've learned so far and, and it, everything's in pencil. And so it's still mm-hmm. in the works, but here's what I've learned so far doing this thing for a year and a half and actually having these conversations now for the better part of 20 something years is I need to allow the possibility that the other person that I really strongly disagree with has good reasons behind it, that there's even moral integrity, like like Curtis Chang was referring to, intellectual integrity under which they've arrived at their their um, positions. Two is I have I have I have left I, I do not believe in in almost all situations that someone can can be v- convinced to change their minds about any particular thing by 180 degrees. Mm. I, I used to, I used to approach when I first started doing evangelism, I used to think that if I had exactly the right way to engage with this person and exactly the right responses, then the result would be, we close the deal, we close the sale right then and there. I just think that's, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what I want to say. I'm a Jersey <laughs> Jew. So I'm like, you know, these things, you can but, say anything you want to. <laughs> BS. Let's just say BS. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's um, more nuanced than that. There's a spectrum of things. I, I had a very technical friend. She was in the IT world. She's a coder. Like she loves to work in the basement. You know, she doesn't really want to talk to people. And she had a kid and she called me and she said, I keep troubleshooting our sleep routine and it's not working. Like, <laughs> that's not how humans work, honey. Like that's not in, in any more than when we're trying to, even not change someone's mind, but just like find some space where we can have commonality. You're absolutely right. It's not formulaic. And, and here's the thing. Like once I allowed for the possibility that I, maybe I can't change anybody's mind 180 degrees on a particular issue, but maybe I can add one degree of nuance to use your word. I love that word, yeah. but here's the thing. There's the, it's contingent upon the possibility that I'll allow them to influence me, to mm-hmm. influence me by 1%. Yeah. Right. Or one degree. Yeah. Ooh, that's and, humbling, though. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's how I get to read a book like Buddha's Brain or Neurodharma. Right. And like, oh, wow, there's really not much, if anything, in here that's in conflict with my theological convictions. But it adds to it. It colors it in. And frankly, the meditation I'm doing right now is better for my mental health than just about anything I've done ever since I was diagnosed. I, I was uh, this is a whole other conversation, but I was diagnosed as um, uh, manic depressive, which makes perfect sense being a Jew from, you know, uh, New York stock um, <laughs> makes total sense. Yeah. But uh, no. So allow for the possibility that you can influence somebody by one degree if that you'll allow them to influence you by one degree. And That's beautiful. The other thing is when you're approaching it as I want to convince this person to become a Christian right here, right now, give their life to the Lord. Um, 
that is very transactional. And that's what Jesus talked about. I, I think those seeds are not getting planted in the good soil. Yeah. So I prefer and I believe more in the value of the relational over the transactional. Sure. So what that one degree does is it allows me to nurture a relationship with somebody. What it also does is it gets me into the right mindset where I, if there's two things that I know more than anything else in the universe is one, there is a God and two is I am not God. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I am not God, I, I can't do the whole universe. What I can do is what's right. What God has put right before me, what God has put right before me is this individual, even an individual, dare I say on Twitter, I have an opportunity <laughs> to, to touch someone, to affect someone, to relate to someone as another human being. But there's even if it's a you know a, a proxy name or something they're hiding behind this thing they just want to throw some rocks there's still a human being behind that what's right. their story what do I have sure. to understand and is there any possibility to to nurture this relationship yeah. so well, the relational uh, over the transactional every and doing doing what I can in this in my little corner of the world as opposed to trying to solve the whole thing the whole thing is just impossible i can't fix america's problems right now i can't even fix santa clarita's problems right now <laughs> but but i can yeah. i can plant some some uh some i i can nurture a relationship with one person that i'm having one conversation with sure so Court, i've got one more question for you before i hand it over to ottoman she asked uh our final question that we ask every guest. And this is, I need to, to kind of put a uh, preface on this because I could talk about this all day because I think it's just, it's so needed in our society and culture today. Let, let me guess, how do I convert you from being a Boston fan to a New York Mets? I knew it was going to come back to baseball. <laughs> I knew it was. <laughs> no, I, 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 for, for that, I am a Calvinist. I was predestined to be a Boston <laughs> fan and there's no other way. So... <laughs> Uh, no, it, it's this, because I, let me be vulnerable for a second, because I struggle with this, uh, because I totally believe in what we're doing. I mean, here at Good Faith Weekly, weekly uh, with all of our other podcasts, with what you're doing, with talking politics and religion without killing each other, um, I believe in all of this. But I also have to recognize that we're doing this from a point of privilege. And let me give you a story behind that. I quote Dr. King all the time, and it was one of the, I think, the prime examples for us to follow as a person of faith influencing social change in a right and just way with the healthy respect towards church-state separation. So I, I just, I really admire all the civil rights leaders of that era and what they did, especially those who did it from the pulpit. And I, one of my favorite quotes from him is, is he's actually quoting another when he says, the arc of the universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. Well, I'm giving, I'm pontificating this uh, presentation one day in the basement of Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and talking about the strides that we need to make as a community of faith, and that we need to be talking with one another, engaged in productive conversation, understanding one another's perspectives while holding on to our own conscience. An elderly black man raised his hand in the air and said, uh, Pastor, he said, I, I believe what you're saying is prophetic, it's needed, and it's just. But I need to tell you something. 
I need that arc to bend at 90 degrees because my kids and grandkids are getting shot in the streets. And when he said that, it was like a gut punch Mm -hmm. that I realized something about myself that I create these environments and these moments where we talk about important issues and we, we hopefully have productive conversations and hopefully, you know, push society forward in a very progressive manner. And I mean that in the traditional sense. Um, but there's also people out there who do not have the amplification that we do. And how do we engage these critical issues that need to be addressing, and there needs to be some change quickly. And sometimes I don't have, people don't have time to involve themselves in conversations that are going to take years long when they need that change today because of what they're facing. And so I I struggle with that because, you know, I I believe in this, this overarching dialogue that we're all having that I think, I I think Dr. King was right. Uh, The arch of history is long, but it does bend towards justice, but there are topics, there are issues that we're dealing with that we need some movement on that. And how do we do that in a constructive, productive and healthy way? It's a great question. And it could be very convicting. And I appreciate your sentiment. Uh, I appreciate that disposition. I appreciate that awareness. If I had that conversation with that elderly, uh, elderly gentleman uh, in that church that you're, you were talking, you were just relaying, I think the conversation would, it, it would probably be a very different one. And this is going to sound, this might sound defensive, but like, listen, if I am getting that exhortation from someone who went to college and grad school, who came from an upper middle class family, and I am being exhorted rather obnoxiously, uh, same message, but different messenger, mm-hmm. um, making assumptions about me uh, as Again, I, I, at risk of sounding defensive, but listen, I, I'm one generation removed from half my family being eviscerated in the Holocaust right, sure. because of our race. Mm-hmm. I'm one generation, and the, my grandmother, uh, the synagogue, and my grandfather, the synagogue that we went to often in, in Brooklyn, uh, Baba grew up in Chernyostrov, Ukraine, and they left. They left prosperity. Our family had prosperity there for 150 years at least, if not longer. Why did they leave? Because there were Cossacks and Bolsheviks and Tsarists who all thought it was okay to march through the town and burn down our houses and rape my ancestors and, and be, literally behead, usually after Easter Passion Plays, the, when things got really, um, really fraught. But finally, they had to leave all of that prosperity. Why? Because we're Jews not just a religion that we chose, but who we are as a people, as a race. That's just one generation removed. So if my grandmother is exhorting me, first of all, she's not using the word privilege. She's using words such as, this is your sacred responsibility. This is your sacred obligation in a way, which resonates with me. Yes, you've made these sacrifices. You left everything, but what you could literally hide in your clothing to, 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 work your way uh, over the course of a year across Europe and across the Atlantic 
So if she's having that conversation with me, which we did many times as a, as a kid growing up, that's a different conversation than someone who maybe learned some things in college and developed a passion for some of these issues and now is beating me over the head with it because I happen to have a lighter shade skin. The reason I have, I, we talked about Jesus a little bit, right? He's a Jew, mm -hmm. a Middle Eastern Jew. I should look much more Middle Eastern than I do. Why am I lighter shade? Because men from the North and the East came through our town in Cherny Ostrov and raped my ancestors. Mm -hmm. That's why I have lighter shade skin. So I, I get, I get a little passionate about this because again, it goes back to who we are as human beings. We all have a different story. We all have, our families have a different story. We have to account for that story. And we have to also, with grace, allow for that humanity and that story in the people that we're relating to. So I've taken this, this response in a very different way, but I think it's something, yes, we're very much aligned that we all need to work harder to, to have those who are currently and historically marginalized in these conversations with us, we have to reckon go. with the reality that that um, uh, there there are folks who don't have the microphone or access to the microphone, and we need to work harder to include uh, folks who who come from a different place or have different um, resources available to them. But we also have to allow for the possibility that that someone like me with the gray hair. And, you know, the genitalia that I have, if I can be blunt, and the shade of skin that I happen to have actually relates to that person at the table a lot more closely than what has been assumed. I, I, I'm, kind, I'm, kind, I'm, I'm kind of heated about it because I've well, been in some of these conversations over the last couple of years where I'm like, you know what? I am not going to take the flagellum because I was raised on a freaking teacher's salary. It wasn't as if I, I grew up in, in great... Uh, my, my parents worked very hard to, to provide us for what we did, but I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a wasp who comes from royalty and take the flagellum in, just in order to be in a conversation. So I, I'm sorry, I took, I took the response in a very different direction. We're in agreement on work that needs to be done right now and acknowledgement of folks that are, are marginalized, uh, but uh, we also need to acknowledge the, the uh, personhood and the stories and the individuality of everyone at the table, including someone who happens to have a lighter shade of skin. And that the moral, this moral arc that you're discussing, Mitch, um, it's a mindset, right? It's a mindset of abundance versus scarcity. Mm -hmm. And there's enough justice for us all. Sure. It, it, no matter where we're coming from, we should be bending this for us all and one person's struggle doesn't negate another's and it's not a contest in that there are some fires that are that are currently burning that I feel like we do have some obligation to attend to and sometimes whatever's most emergently on fire at the time gets our attention um but that it, this whole mindset of scarcity versus abundance is, is just sort of overarching in so many conversations that I'm having lately. And we feel like we have to get ours, you know, but when it comes to love and justice and mercy and all these fruits of the spirit that we should be focusing our lives on, there's enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I, Mish, I apologize if I, if I have some hard, you know, sharp elbows. No, and that that, because I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't know how to respond to the guy. I mean, I thought it was a legitimate uh, 
remark that he made. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, 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 I don't live in his narrative, and I live in my own narrative. I'm Muskogee Creek. Uh, you know, the, the report came out yesterday from the federal government about the boarding schools. My great-grandmother and her sister were residents of one of those boarding schools, were whipped because they were simply Indian. And so, but I, I you know, I don't walk in his shoes uh, on the streets of D.C. I don't see, you know, I don't have to worry about my kids walking out the door and possibly getting shot just because of the color of their skin. And so, you know, I appreciate, one of the things that I really appreciated in your answer was the importance of not only inviting them, uh, those underrepresented individuals and communities to the table, but allowing them to speak to us and then in return us listening to them in all honesty because we don't know what it's like to be an african-american male in this country we don't know what it's like to grow up jewish and face anti-semitism we don't know what it's like to wear hijab and be made fun of uh, in public schools because of your religious convictions we don't know that so there's this long this long arc that we're in continuous conversation about hopefully discovering our shared humanity, discovering mm-hmm. that we have a lot more commonalities than we do differences, while at the same time understanding there are these moments, these nuances in history that we have to address quickly. Like, for example, I don't really care what Vladimir Putin's reasoning for invading Ukraine is. I don't have to know his narrative to understand that. It's a land grab. And and that's what he's trying to do. And so I don't have to be involved into a conversation that he just needs to get out. And right. the world needs yeah. to stand uh, in solidarity with that. So, you know, I think there there are two tracks that we're on here. We're, we are involved in this, this moral arc of history that is an ongoing conversation and a search to discover each other's humanity. And that is profitable and honorable and righteous. And yeah. at the same time, there are the moments where the prophet must stand up like King did, like others have done, and say, this is wrong and things need to change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the remarkable remarkable things about Dr. King is that he, his methods, his tactics, and his, his overall strategy – Number one was to name was to name prejudice was to name uh, was to illustrate it when it was happening and and underscore what that actually looked like in our world, you know. And on a day to day basis, we're still facing a lot of the same symptoms that let lead to all this. There's a tendency in all of us in all of us to mischaracterize someone based on one or two data points that we might have about them. And then to generalize what that person must be like, because we've seen the likes of them. Mm -hmm. And then based on that mischaracterization and generalization to vilify or demonize that person. Mm -hmm. So the way to combat that is not to do another form of mischaracterization, generalization, and demonization in return. The way to combat hatefulness is not with more hatefulness but humanizing an individual. You know, it was so profound to me. I'm reading this book uh, by a great teacher in um, based in India right now. I'm on this kind of uh, Buddhist and uh, mindfulness meditation kick. And that's fabulous. Yeah. She, uh, she, she actually grew up in, uh, in 
in the States before moving. Uh, she got a doctorate from Stanford, moved to India, and just stayed there. She's been there for about 25 years. She was sexually abused as a girl by her father. And she said she had this, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. She had this revelation where she even humanized her father as a hurt and broken human being. Mm-hmm. And she could see, um, she could see, see the fractures in, in, in him, uh, you know, part of, part of her process of forgiveness, she didn't need to forgive him so much as relieve herself of that, which she was carrying around long after she, she was no, they were no longer in each other's life. And part of that was just seeing his humanity, mm-hmm. not continuing to keep, to keep him as a monster, but, but to see his humanity and what, not, not trying to, I don't know, it's a complicated issue, but it was really profound how she was talking about the very abuser, the monster that was abusing her and how she vested him with a humanity. That is profound to me. Yeah. And I think Dr. King did that again and again and again. Sure. That he took those monsters and he allowed for the possibility that they were human beings, that maybe they'll respond to seeing a burned and beaten and shot face of a boy. Uh, if if those pictures were shown, mm-hmm. that they might respond to a human being who says, "I am going to sit right here, whether it's on a bus or at a at a at a lunch counter," and, and that that it may resonate with another human being who's who comes from a family that has historically been beating us up. Yeah, you know that he and Dr. King he always spoke out of love too. Yeah, you know, hate is too great of a burden to bear for him, and you know that's why he always chose love. Now, it didn't mean that he wasn't angry, and those are raw, appropriate emotions to very difficult circumstances that we we all face in life. Yeah, but we do so processing that through this agape kind of love that God has granted us. It is very difficult. It is not easy, but. In the end, that can bring healing to the individual, which hopefully leads to healing in the community that is all around us. And I think that's what Dr. King embodied. I got to tell you a story since I know Autumn and you both are, are fans of theater and, and film. So I got to tell you both to, to just lighten this up. Um, uh, so <laughs> it's it, it's thematically on, on course here. And I'm sorry, we're probably going over time, but... So I got to spend the day with this guy named Rod Steiger. Uh, oh. It was a, a great day. Yeah, He's no a great doubt. actor, and a lot of folks know a bunch of roles he was in. Well, he played the brother of the Marlon Brando character on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be reading both Ilya Kazan and Marlon Brando's autobiography at the time, so I had questions for Rod Steiger. <laughs> and I, I learned a couple of things. Number one, that famous scene in the back of the cab where um, – the uh, you know the famous uh, soliloquy from film. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So Steiger told me how that came about. He said so. There was supposed to be a film playing behind the cab. The cab was on the soundstage. Film playing behind the cab, so it looked like they were going through the old neighborhood. And this beautiful scene was written about the old neighborhood and being brothers and growing up. This the film broke, so they didn't have anything that they could that they could be talking about. And it just didn't make sense. So Kazan, being a brilliant director, said, I got to figure it out. I'm going to put a Venetian blind in the back of the cab, which a lot of cabs had at that time. And you guys can do the scene as written. But Steiger and Brando being method actors, like, no, no, it doesn't work. We're going to improvise. Yeah, okay, let's see. Let's see what happens. So uh, Steiger was telling me 
I had it planned. I'm going to give Brando, he's a good enough actor. I'm going to give him a gift and I'm going to pull out a gun at a certain point. And he said, I knew, I knew that Brando would either act to fear or anger one way or the other. I knew what to do depending on how he acted. And he goes, that SOB, he did something completely different. He, Steiger pulls out the gun and Brando is brokenhearted. Mm. And he, with one hand, he touches the end of the gun and he puts it down. He, he has Steiger's character put it down. And that's where that could, he goes, oh, Charlie, you should have looked out for me. I could have been a content, I could have been a somebody brokenhearted yeah. right <laughs> that's how one of the most famous that's fantastic it's a completely different yeah. you know humanizing the shared the vulnerability right. yeah. Yeah. yeah i love oh, that Charlie, i could have been a somebody <laughs> uh, that's great well Corey nathan thank you so much it has been a pure delight i know uh you know we got a little heavy uh, in the pod but uh, that's that's deep and meaningful conversations and uh, to our listeners you can hear uh, Corey get deep and uh, theological and political uh, at his podcast that is talking politics and religion without killing each other. Was, did I say it right, Autumn? You did. Okay. Good job. <laughs> I didn't I do it with that Texas G. twang. <laughs> Uh, but it is outstanding. You can uh, we encourage you to subscribe to it, listen to it uh, wherever you listen to podcasts because it's absolutely brilliant. It's got some great, great guests on there. Even friends of uh, our pod, uh, like uh, Brian Kaler, was on there uh, not too long ago. So, so it's a great podcast. Check it out. But uh, Corey, before we let you go, Autumn always asks our guest one last question, and I cannot let you go without letting her ask it. So, Autumn, take it away. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. Um, following our incredible conversation with you and, and just knowing your insightful brain from listening to your podcast, I'm so excited to hear what your more to tell is. I, I'd like to flip that around just a little bit. I think that there's more to ask. Mm. Mm. So we all have someone, if not a bunch of someone's in our life that I can't believe he thinks that I can't believe they said that I can't believe I'm know, related a, to a lot of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, Thanksgiving can be pretty you know, right that scene that that would be a good comedy right there. <laughs> but there's more to ask. And a great question is, I, I just don't understand. Can you help me understand? Mm. You know, I, I had a I had a months long argument with my son who chose not to get the vaccine, partly because when he was first even thinking about it, he was kind of open to it. He, um, he just immediately got attacked. How can you say that? How can you do that? You can't wait and get a vaccine and you're terrible and you're stupid and you're this and dog pile on the rabbit. And I was one of the dogs, <laughs> you know, and we couldn't talk about it. And then finally, after the vaccine was approved, I thought, okay, FDA approval, maybe, you know, one of his reasons is taken away. And I tried to approach him about it again. He's like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. Everybody beat me up. And I said, you know what, Jackie boy, you're absolutely right. I am so sorry. But can you help me understand? I just want to understand. And we had we, we had a better conversation after that, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. W there's more to tell, but I think there's more to ask. I love and that. And I think that might be that one degree of building that bridge to the folks where the relationships have been fractured. And we can't heal the world but maybe we can get one degree or one step on that bridge in our world, immediate world. I uh, love that there. goal. Yeah. That 1% thing. I'm, I'm going to, that's going to be a nugget in my brain as I talk with people who I want to 
punch sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right? Tikkun olam, one person at a time, one conversation, one step, one degree at a time. So. Uh, yes. That's great. Yes. Uh, well, Corey Nathan, again, thank you so much for joining uh, Good Faith Weekly. We really appreciate uh, you and all the work you're doing. And uh, uh, we invite you back anytime, my friend. Oh, man, this has been fun, Mitch. Autumn. I, and you know what? I got to come and, and brave the tornado possibilities and maybe just hang out with you in person, get some good barbecue down there. Yeah, maybe absolutely. Do it in person at some point. Yeah, yes. That'd be fantastic. Yes. So. Well, audience, thank you so much uh, for joining us this week. As always, we appreciate uh, you tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. And until next week, Autumn and I will be back with another wonderful guest. You keep living good faith. <laughs>